Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 210. We'll begin the scroll of Song of Songs with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about the man who made all the love, attraction, and desire possible. For those of you just joining us, we just completed a significant section of the Ketuvim, or writings, the third section of the Tanakh. The Book of Psalms, Proverbs, and Job are the wisdom books, and with their end, we will still get wisdom, but in a different form. This upcoming section, the Megillot, or scrolls, is a sub-anthology of five books, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Though they are grouped together, they are very different from each other in content, form, style, and date. The term Megillah, or scroll, is a utilitarian one. During the period of the Tanakh, all texts were written on scrolls of vellum or papyrus, but in a later period, when this form of document-keeping fell out of style, this style was reserved for sacred texts like Torahs, mezuzahs, and tefillin scrolls. You won't find the term five Megillot, or five scrolls, to describe this collection anywhere in rabbinic literature, but the first of these texts to be referred to as a scroll by the rabbis of the Mishnah in the first two centuries of the Common Era was Esther. And a whole tractate of the Mishnah was dedicated to discussing and elaborating, among other things, the laws of Purim and the reading of the scroll. It is from this usage that the word scroll was then applied to the other books read on Jewish holy days in the synagogue. Song of Songs is read on Passover, Lamentations on the 9th of Av, the day of public mourning for the destruction of both temples, Ruth is read on Shavuot to mark the summer harvest, Ecclesiastes is read during Sukkot, the last harvest of fall, which also includes prayers for rain, and finally Esther, which as I mentioned before, is read on Purim. Their order was determined by when they were read in the Jewish ritual calendar, as Nisan is the first calendar month, Passover comes first. Song of Songs is also the only book in all of the Tanakh about erotic love between a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman with absolutely no religious message whatsoever. But since its inclusion in the biblical canon, commentators have gone to great lengths to interpret this collection of poems as anything but erotic love between a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman, beginning famously with Rabbi Akiva's declaration in the Mishnah, Tractate Yadaim, or Hands, that, quote, For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. There is one take that's against this grange. In Shir Hashirim Rabbah, a commentary on Song of Songs, Rabbi Yonatan states that Shlomo, the son of David, who wrote Song of Songs in his youth, quote, when one is a boy, he says words of music, the elder says words of prophecy, and the old man says words of vanity. The words of prophecy Rabbi Yonatan is referring to are the Proverbs, and words of vanity we'll get to when we read Ecclesiastes. Jewish scholars are not alone in their fervid attempts to sanitize these erotic poems brimming with love, attraction, and desire. Early church fathers like the 3rd century Origen was the first to assert that Song of Songs was a wedding parable about Jesus as the groom wedding the bride church. 
whether this scroll is indeed filled with wedding poems and songs, which is a reach because nowhere do they talk about weddings, or a repackaging of poems and songs once used as part of a Sumerian fertility rite, which is also a bit of a reach as the vocabulary and certain grammatical forms clearly indicate a relatively late date of composition sometime in the late 4th century BCE, What's inescapable is the content. A man and a woman declared their love for each other. For the purposes of Tanakhcast, I will refer to them as the man and the woman. And they declare a lot of their love for each other in what biblical scholars call semantic parallelism. That is, the line of verse breaks into two parts where the second repeats the first to concretize, focus, or intensify it. We'll see this a lot in Song of Songs, but not at the outset. Chapter 1 begins with the woman imagining her desirable lover from a distance. In the third person, quote, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, before shifting to second person in the second half of that line, quote, For your loving is better than wine. There's no semantic parallelism here, but the beginning of a list whereby the woman initiates us into the yearnings of the senses. Here, taste, in the next verse, smell. Quote, For fragrance your oils are goodly, poured oil is your name. We'll intimate touch in verse 13, and sight in verse 15, where we'll also bring in sound as well. The woman then turns to the daughters of Jerusalem in a seeming apology. Quote, I am dark but desirable. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like Solomon's curtains. Here's our first example of parallelism, and it's here to intensify our narrator's point. She uses it to make an argument against the city girls who would make fun of her for her peasant suntan. Yes, I'm dark, she says, like nomads' tents woven from black goat's hair. The name Kedar puns on a Hebrew root that means dark. But my darkened skin, she says, which you think belongs in a rough backcountry setting, is also something lovely, like Shlomo's tent hangings, which were surely dyed in royal fashion in deep blue or purple. She is tan, she tells us, because her brothers sent her into the vineyard to perform this rough peasant task in order to punish her. Why? She says, quote, my own vineyard I have not kept. Draw your own conclusions, what she means here. Now she addresses her beloved directly. It seems she is also a shepherd, and so is he. She asks him exactly where she may find him, because she might wander into the company of his male friends, who might be tempted to take advantage of her beauty. His response reads like a lover's tease, quote, If you do not know, O fairest of women, go out in the tracks of the sheep. In other words, Figured out. But before the exchange grows too playful with barbs, the man begins to lavish compliments on his beloved, likening her to the finest of Egyptian horses, bedecked with looped earrings, beads, gold, and silver. But before we get too focused on horses, the verse shifts to a more intimate space, the bedroom. Quote, While the king was on his couch, my spikenard gave off its scent. A sachet of myrrh is my lover to me, all night between my breasts, a cluster of henna my lover to me, in the vineyards of Engedi. The man is lying in bed waiting for her, and as she approaches, she is aware of the fragrance of her body, the spikenard which came all the way from the Himalayas, and in the next line her lover becomes the fragrance kept in a little bag strung around her neck and resting between her breasts. Then finally the lover is a cluster of henna pressed to her body. Oh, you are fair, my friend. Oh, you are fair. Your eyes are doves, he says to her. 
She replies, Oh, you are fair, my lover. You are sweet. Our bed is verdant, too. Are they together out in the forest, or is she describing how lushly decorated their bedroom is? It's not clear. Chapter 2 continues with the lover telling his beloved that she is, quote, Like a lily among the thorns, so is my friend among the young women. She replies that her beloved is, quote, Like a quince tree among the trees of the forest, so is my lover among the young men. In its shade I delighted to sit, and its fruit was sweet to my taste. She then tells the daughters of Jerusalem to step off, that all their implied questions about where her absent lover is will not force matters. She will be with him, and they will be together in good time. Quote, Hark, oh, my lover is coming, bounding over the mountains, leaping over the hills. He summons her to join him out in nature that is budding and bursting forth with life. Quote, For look, the winter has passed, the rain has gone away. Buds can be seen in the land, the nightingale season has come, and the turtle dove's voice is heard in our land. The fig tree has put forth its green fruit, and the vines in blossom waft fragrance. Arise and go, my friend, my fair one, go forth. But she's not coming right away. She's hiding, playing with him. She won't come to the vineyard right away. And even if the little foxes prove a nuisance, quote, our vineyards are in bloom. She concludes chapter two with a bold declaration. Quote, my lover is mine and I am his who grazes among the lilies until morning's breeze blows and the shadows flee. Turn round, be like a deer, my love, or like a gazelle on the cloven mountains. Chapter three brings us to the nighttime where we find the woman laying in bed, unable to sleep, yearning for her man. Quote, let me rise and go round the town in the streets and in the square. Let me seek him I love so. I sought him but did not find him. This is a bold act, a woman going out alone at night to wander about looking for her man. She doesn't find him at first. The watchmen find her, but within moments she finds him and clings to him and brings him home to her mother's house and to a private space within. She then turns again to the daughters of Jerusalem and tells them to step off once again. Quote, you shall not stir nor rouse love until it pleases. The chapter concludes the vision of a woman coming from the desert. Who it is is unclear, but she is well-fragranced and ushered into the royal palace of Shlomo, into his lavish bedroom. And then the woman tells the daughters of Jerusalem to go out and see, quote, King Solomon in the diadem with which his mother crowned him on his wedding day, on the day of his heart's rejoicing. In episode 153, I recounted a vigorous debate from Mishnah Daim about whether Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, all works imputed to Shlomo in his youth, maturity, and old age, respectively, should be included in the Tanakh. Quote, all sacred scriptures render the hands impure. Hold up. Wait a minute. Impure. Why? And one would think the opposite, that hands render sacred scriptures impure, or at least oily. Except, no. To unpack this, we have to go to the Mishnah, a different tractate this time. It's Mishnah Shabbat, where it says, quote, And these are among the halachot, the laws that the sages who went up to visit him said in the upper story of Hananiah ben Chizkiah ben Garon. When the people expressing opinions were counted, 
The students of the school of Shammai outnumbered the students of the school of Hillel, and they issued decrees with regard to 18 matters on that day in accordance with the opinion of the school of Shammai. Now, if you go into the commentaries on this particular Mishnah, you will find the following in the Bartanura. Hold up. Wait a minute. Who's the Bartanura, you say? Bartanura, or... Bertanoro, Italy, is the home of 15th century scholar Rabbi Ovadia ben Avraham, who wrote a commentary on the Mishnah. He did us a solid and actually listed the 18 matters discussed in the attic of Ben Garon's house, where the school of Shammai prevailed over the school of Hillel. What's relevant for this episode is the sixth decree quote, Books of holy writ defile Truma through contact, for at first they would hide the food of Truma with Torah scrolls. Hold up! Wait a minute! What's Truma, you say? Well, we talked about Truma for the first time in episode 21, when God tells Moshe to tell the children of Israel to put their hands in their pockets and give a, quote, raised contribution, and then goes on to specify the different kinds of contributions that, quote, every man whose heart makes him willing can give. Of course, there's gold, silver, bronze, various dyed skins, oils, precious stones, visa, MasterCard, Interac. The point of collecting all of these contributions is to build God a holy shrine, quote, that I may dwell amidst them. Later, once the temple is constructed, Truma consisted mostly of agricultural products, usually grains of various kinds, which brings us back to Bartanura's explanation. Quote, People would say that this, that is, the Torah scroll, and that, that is, the Truma, are holy. When they saw that the books of holy writ were being damaged, since the mice that are found near the foodstuffs would cause damage to the books of holy writ, they decreed that these books, that is Torah, prophets, and writings, through their contact would defile the truma. Get it? The rabbis declared sacred scrolls as defiling to protect them more than the thing they ostensibly defile. The same is true with hands. Long before liquid soap, people's hands were probably dirty much of the time. We don't want them handling sacred scrolls. So again, we protect the scrolls by making them defilers. All this is to say that we're heading back into the original Mishnah in Yadaim. Keep up. Quote, the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes render the hands impure. Rabbi Yehuda says, the Song of Songs renders the hands impure, but there is a dispute regarding Ecclesiastes. Rabbi Yose says, Ecclesiastes does not render the hands impure, and there is a dispute regarding the Song of Songs. Rabbi Shimon says, Ecclesiastes is among the leniencies of the school of Shammai and the stringencies of the school of Hillel. Hold up! Wait a minute! Say what now? What Rabbi Shimon says here is that Ecclesiastes makes the cut as a sacred scroll because the school of Shammai, who usually says no, like on everything, here says yes. And the school of Hillel, who usually says yes, like everywhere, here says no. But let's continue. Rabbi Shimon ben Azai says, I have received tradition from the mouths of 72 elders. On the day they inducted Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah into his seat as the head of the academy, that the Song of Songs in Ecclesiastes render the hands impure. Rabbi Akiva said, Mercy forbid, no one in Israel ever disputed that the Song of Songs renders the hands impure, since nothing in the entire world is worthy but for that day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And if they did dispute, 
there was only a dispute regarding Ecclesiastes. And here's the conclusion. Rabbi Yochanan ben Yoshua, the son of Rabbi Akiva's father-in-law, said, quote, In accordance with the words of ben Azai, thus did they dispute, and thus did they conclude. So what does all this back and forth tell us? First of all, the canon of Tanakh was not a consensus-based thing until very late in Jewish history. Ben Azai was a distinguished Tana, that is, figure in the Mishnah, in the first third of the second century, which means that well into the common era, we were still arguing about which books should be included in the Tanakh and which should not. This is mind-blowing enough, but what's even more mind-blowing is which book was questioned the most, not the erotic poetry of Song of Songs. That seemed to find resolution relatively early in the argument. It's the nihilistic and cynical Ecclesiastes, and even that bomb-throwing scroll gets included in the end. The rabbis, however, were keenly aware about the erotic potential of Song of Songs. Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, folio page 101a, quote, The sages taught, one who reads a verse from Song of Songs and renders it a form of secular song and not a sacred text, and one who reads any biblical verse at a banquet house, not at its appropriate time, but merely as a song, introduces evil to the world. As the Torah girds itself with sackcloth and stands before the Holy One, blessed be he, and says before him, Master of the universe, your children have rendered me like a harp on which clowns play. So why does Song of Songs remain in the canon if it can so easily introduce evil into the world? Perhaps it is thanks to one man, Rabbi Akiva, who I quoted earlier as saying, quote, For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. If anyone could have made the case that Song of Songs is an allegory for the Jewish people's love of God, it was Akiva, whose martyrdom embodies this allegorical interpretation. The story of that martyrdom comes to us from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Brachot, folio page 61b. Quote, the sages taught, One time, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the evil empire of Rome decreed that Israel may not engage in the study and practice of Torah. Papos ben Yehuda came and found Rabbi Akiva, who was convening assemblies in public and engaging in Torah studies. Papos said to him, Akiva, are you not afraid of the empire? Rabbi Akiva answered him, I will relate a parable. To what can this be compared? It is like a fox walking along a riverbank when he sees fish gathering and fleeing from place to place. The fox said to them, From what are you fleeing? They said to him, We are fleeing from the nets that people cast upon us. He said to them, Do you wish to come upon dry land and we will reside together, just as my ancestors resided with your ancestors? The fish said to him, You are our the one whom they say he is the cleverest of the animals? You are not clever. You are a fool. If we are afraid in the water, our natural habitat which gives us life, then in a habitat that causes our death, all the more so. The moral is, so too we Jews, now that we sit and engage in Torah study about which it is written, quote, for that is your life and the length of your days, we fear the empire to this extent. If we proceed to sit idle from its study, as its abandonment is the habitat that causes our death, all the more so, we will fear the empire. The sages said, Not a few days passed until they seized Rabbi Akiva and incarcerated him in prison, and seized Papos ben Yehuda and incarcerated him alongside. 
Rabbi Akiva said to him, Papos, who brought you here? Papos replied, Happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, for you were arrested on the charge of engaging in Torah study. Woe unto Papos, who is seized on the charge of engaging in idle matters. When they took Rabbi Akiva out to be executed, it was time for the recitation of the Shema. And when they were raking his flesh with iron combs, and he was reciting Shema, thereby accepting upon himself the yoke of heaven, his students said to him, Our teacher, even now as you suffer, you recite Shema. He said to them, All my days I have been troubled by the verse, You shall love your God with all your soul, meaning even if God takes your soul. I said to myself, When will the opportunity be afforded me to fulfill this verse? Now that it has been afforded me, shall I not fulfill it? He prolonged his uttering of the word one until his soul left his body as he uttered his final word one. A voice descended from heaven and said, Happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, that your soul left your body as you uttered one. Akiva introduced a whole new way to interpret sacred texts. He revolutionized the way we understand our tradition. He also left his wife Rachel alone and impoverished for decades while he studied, and she remained cut off by her father, Kalba Savua, because he didn't approve of the match. That, Akiva, made it possible for us to continue the study of this scroll, the only one of its kind, where we hear a woman's voice more than a man's, one of the most powerful expressions of human love, attraction, and desire, which we will continue to explore in our next episode. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 211, when we conclude the scroll of Song of Songs with chapters 4 through 7.